Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. So it's August 2013, and I'm in Rindavan, India, right in the middle of the busiest festival of the year. Rindavan is a town of about 63,000 people, and there are over 5,000 temples. For devotees of Krishna, the amorous, cowherd, prince, flautist, divine being of the Indian pantheon, there's no holier place in the world, or perhaps even the universe. Rindavan marks where Krishna spent his childhood years, and so the famous stories of his mischievous childhood exploits all took place here. The water tank here at Radhakund is where he and Radha used to have their midnight meetups, the amorous sway of their nocturnal dance in the forest mirroring the amorous sway of creation itself. These trees Radha used to swing from. This low, stony outcropping is the famed Mount Govardhan, which Krishna hoisted up onto one pinky in defiance of Indra, the old Vedic thunder god. It's a city teeming with devotion, and what I mean by devotion is hard for us in the West to even comprehend unless we've been there. It means that even under normal circumstances, the city is like a 24-7 mosh pit to the divine. Banki Bihari Temple is spiritual mayhem, people collapsing and falling on their knees and rolling on the ground and shouting the divine name and tossing their babies up to be blessed by the priests. Rapture in the face of the force of love. I hadn't planned to be there for Krishna Janmashtami, the festival that celebrates Krishna's birth and boyhood, but since I was, I decided to make the most of it. I wandered through the crowded alleyways, throngs of celebrants singing and clapping and dancing, and I look into an old courtyard, and there's quite a scene happening. Strung across the courtyard on a high laundry line is a clay pot. It's pretty high up there, well out of reach of even the highest jumper. And there are a whole bunch of young guys, probably between the ages of about 13 and 22, gathered around and looking up at the pot intently. And then the reverie starts. Some of the young guys, the bigger ones, arrange themselves into a tight circle, supporting each other with their arms. A second group starts clambering up the backs of the guys in the circle until they reach their shoulders. They're trying to make a human pyramid trying to get to the clay pot above. It's a reenactment, of course, of one of the beloved tales of the young Lord Krishna, who used to go to such great lengths to steal butter or drink butter right from the cow that eventually his mother had to hide the butter by stringing it up where he couldn't get it. But he devised a scheme. He enlisted his friends to make a human pyramid so that he could reach the pot. The pot full of sweet butter. Well, it's harder than it sounds. This particular butter pot is going to take a three-tiered pyramid in order to reach. 
And as if that's not hard enough, the young ladies have arrived on the scene and their job is to turn on these pressurized water hoses and spray the boys relentlessly with water so that as they're trying to climb, they're getting soaked with blasts of water. And it's mayhem, slipping, sliding, clambering. The whole pyramid collapses several times. It's like a scene out of cheer. One guy sprains his ankle pretty bad. Another gets a heel right to the back of his skull, and the young ladies are laughing, and the guys try again. Methodically and deliberately, they build the second tier of the pyramid, paying no mind to taunting girls and relentless hosing. This time might work. They send one young, wiry kid clambering up the groaning bodies at the base of the pyramid. He reaches one set of shoulders, then sets his sight on the next. The whole pyramid is swaying, the footing tenuous on the slippery stones, but he gains the shoulders of the boys on the second tier. Shakily, he stands, reaches an arm up towards the dangling pot of butter, takes a decisive swing, and cracks it wide open. There's a gush, and a golden, buttery, yogurty ghee or ghee-ish yogurt pours out, showering the boys in the pyramid who turn their faces up to receive the sweet nectar into their mouths. There's a great myth that is told and retold in cultures throughout the world. No, it's not the monomyth of Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey as some call it, nor is it the symbolic psychological journey of the individual outlined by Jung. It's something far more direct and far closer to home. The story goes like this. Something is harnessed, raised upwards, suspended there, until finally there is a great cracking open and then a cascade of sweetness downward, just like Krishna's butter pot. Mythologist Joseph Sansonese, who I've quoted often on this podcast, calls this, and not Campbell's monomyth, the real great myth, or myth of myths. He says that what is being described in the great myth is not a literal external adventure, nor a thought process, some sort of symbolic psychological journey through abstract archetypes, but a state of being, a state of consciousness. The yogic somatic process itself, the journey described in the yoga texts and sung about in the mystery schools and encoded in stories and dances and practices from the plains of South Dakota to the highlands of Tibet, the journey of the individual practitioner towards an experience of yogic union, the trance state, a journey so central to the human story that it is found literally everywhere. Here's what he says. And this is the basis uh, of what I like to call the myth of myth. The myth of myth, the central myth, is the core of every important myth that you can name, and that is something is held up and prevented from coming down until that something, whatever it is, bursts, breaks, then comes a downpour, literally, in the brain. This story of raising up, suspending, cracking open, and cascading downwards is of course exactly how the yogic texts describe the meditative process of samadhi. Through breath and meditative focus, the internal energies of the body are united in the central channel and raised upward. Then there's a rupture. 
a breaking open. It can sound far-fetched, this vision of the great myth, because we're used to thinking of themes and story elements in myth in terms of how they relate to ideas and thoughts, abstractions. We don't tend to describe our own human experience in terms of directional forces, raising up, cracking open, sweetness showering downward. It can sound far-fetched because in a world focused on externals, the idea that we would put such prime importance on describing the detailed specifics of interior experience is foreign to us. Yet this story is everywhere, and there's absolutely no reason culture upon culture upon culture would spend so much time and energy describing a rise, a rupture, a sweet luminous cascade, unless it was something that people were feeling again and again and again. This idea, this holding something up until it breaks and then something sweet comes pouring down, which is cascades called downward. the cascades down, you know, that uh, is universal. It's something physiological. The only thing it can be is something physiological. Today on the podcast, I draw from an interview with Joseph Sansonese to look at this great myth of uniting, raising up and suspending, cracking open and cascading, the somatic journey of the trance process described in a thousand ways in a thousand cultures, all leading to the conclusion that the greatest of myths takes place not in Neverland or Amaravati, but in that holiest of places, the small, infinite dome of the human skull. Not as an idea or thought or abstract symbol, but as real felt experience. Oh, holy rupture, cracking open the great myth with Joseph Sansonese today on The Emerald. Have you ever had a breakthrough? You struggled and struggled and struggled at something, and then suddenly there was a tangible rupture, a moment of catharsis, crisis, and then after that moment it was like smooth sailing? Sure you have. It may have happened on the yoga mat. It may have happened with an artistic project. It may have happened on the trail during a run. It's an effort to keep going, and you're not sure if you can do it, and then all of a sudden, pop, something breaks open and you're in the zone. You're not thinking of you as you anymore. You feel like you've been broken open into a state of oneness, a state of flow. There may even be a feeling of tingling warmth that accompanies it. Pituitary hormones, pineal hormones, some internal cocktail of rewards. Nectar. Cascading. So, a very long time ago, people realized they could deliberately harness this process of breakthrough, which is why, of course, every culture does it. The yoga texts will tell you very clearly and succinctly how the process goes. Through harnessing the breath, deepening it, slowing it, sometimes stopping it altogether, and fixing the meditative focus, there's a uniting, and then a rising up, and then a rupture, a holy rupture, followed by a sweet cascade. This is from the Amrita Siddhi, quote, The kundalini rises through the central channel, and upon reaching the source of amrita, or nectar of immortality, in the head, 
floods the body with this liquid, thus making it immortal. Let's pause for a second on this word, immortal. The word for nectar in Sanskrit, amrita, means deathless, immortal. Does it mean physically immortal? No. It means that when we have a moment of breakthrough and we experience this sweet cascade, the defining experience of that breakthrough is that past, present, and future merge. There are no distractions. We're present, fully aware, in the zone. That is the state of amrita, of nectar, of immortality. If all times are ultimately now, then the way to be immortal is to be fully present, steeped in the nectar of the present moment. From the Tirumandiram, within the golden regions of the cranium, the sparkling nectar flows in silver cascades. There it is inside, as in the astral spheres above. And the Kechari Vidya, the goddess, that's Kundalini that's being referred to, having thus reached the abode of the divine, which is the skull, sprinkles the body of the yogi from the soles of the feet to the crown of his head with the dewy, unctuous, cool nectar. The nectar, the heavenly liquid, is, quote, the moon, the seed, the blood of the gods, the vital essence of everything, says the Amrita Siddhi. Quote, from the peaks of the great range of the skull, the heavenly waterfall endlessly cascades, coursing prana through the central channel. There, on the stony arena of the central mountain of the universe, the Lord performs his timeless dance. I saw it myself, that never-ending bliss light. So the skull here is a great mountain range. The internal anatomy reflects external anatomy. The story that is being told of this great dance that happens on this stony arena is the story of a journey that happens in the body. The stories of the heroes are stories that happen inside us, but not as thoughts or concepts or even ideas, as felt revelatory experience. Like the story of Indra, who's the great hero of the Vedas. Where does Indra live? Well, the ancient Indian texts give us a big, big clue here as to how to interpret these types of myths. Indrayoni, the birthplace of that great hammer-wielding, soma-quaffing hero Indra, is in the skull. David Frawley tells us in his book Soma and Yoga and Ayurveda, quote, The soft palate is said to be the birthplace of Indra, the supreme consciousness the seer in Vedic thought. Concentrating on the soft palate with deep focus can reveal all the secrets of bliss and immortality. This is why when yogis meditate, they place the tongue on the roof of the mouth. This helps them drink the inner nectar. So by extension, any story of Indra is a story that takes place in the skull. It is the story of the stirring of awakened consciousness inside the head. So when Indra, divinely intoxicated, roaring with a warrior's battle cry, 
slays the serpent being Vrtra, whose very body is a vast storehouse of immortal nectar, we can easily conclude that the slaying of Vrtra and the pouring forth of nectar that occurs after is a rupture and a pouring forth in the skull of the seer. Like the slaying of Vrtra, the rupture or breaking open of the individual ego into the realm of the immortal cascading nectar is often told through stories of piercing, piercing open. In Australia, Aranda shamans go through a meditative initiation process that enacts this progression of piercing, rupture, and cascade. From Joseph Campbell, quote, a lance thrown by the spirits pierces his head from ear to ear, and the victim, that's the young shaman acolyte, falling dead, is immediately carried into the depths of a cave within which the spirits live in perpetual sunshine among streams of running water. I mentioned this one a bunch of episodes back because it couldn't be more parallel to the yogic texts. Through meditative concentration, the yogi moves the lance of the focused energy upward, piercing the palate and then finally the space between the temples, where the individual self dies and finds the depths of the caves where spirits live in perpetual sunshine and running water. The perpetual sunshine, of course, being the perpetual light of conscious samadhi, and the streams of running water the flow of the amrita, the deathless nectar. Here's a pop quiz for the Christians in the audience. Where was Jesus crucified? Do you remember the name of the place? Yes, I know it was in the Holy Land, near Jerusalem, right? But do you remember the name of the hill upon which the cross was raised and the body pierced with the Roman's lance, upon which it gushed forth with a cascade of water? The name of the hill is Golgotha, which means, of course, skull. The crucifixion happened and happens within a place called Skull. Here's Joseph Sansonese on the crucifixion. Jesus, how many times does he fall on his way up Golgotha? Three. If you were raised a Catholic, like I was, you're, you're taught about this. Jesus falls the first time. Jesus falls the second time. Jesus falls the third. Well, Jesus, there he is with this onomatopoetic name, Jesus, of the breath. And he falls. He goes up and he falls. He goes up and he falls. He goes up. And he falls. What's being described here at Golgotha, which literally means the skull in Aramaic, hmm. you're talking about the rise and fall of the breath until eventually he's raised up on the cross and he stays there. He's fixed there until something happens, something cataclysmic happens, right? What did, how does the Bible describe it? The tombs were opened and the dead came forth. The heavens parted thunder and lightning and, you know, everything when he died, right? That's your pituitary catastrophe. But it required going up to the top and staying there. This is the basic core myth of myth. 
Now, is this to say that the crucifixion of Jesus didn't happen, that it's all metaphorical? Absolutely not. It's to say that things happen on multiple levels, as above, so below. So that for those who saw, the process of crucifixion was not just a moral lesson for humanity, but an interior somatic instruction, the rise and fall of the breath awareness, until it is finally fixed in place high upon a hill called the skull, followed by a piercing, a breakthrough, from which comes a gush, a cascade of life-giving water, and finally, an uttered statement, it is accomplished. The statement Christ made before his death, the death of the hero, the flow of nectar, the salvation of the inner and outer worlds. And the rupture is a death process, but a death process that ultimately results in immortality. Ultimately, what the knowledge is trying, what the core knowledge is trying to do is to recreate for you, while you're alive, the experience of dying. The actual literal, not the symbolic, the actual literal experience of dying. So that when that occurs, you won't, in the vernacular, you won't freak out. When you begin to die, when you start to realize you're not coming back, this is it, you're going, you can start to freak out. Your mind can run <laughs> wild. And at that point, as you're starting to leave your body, the word of God, this high-pitched wine uh, energy that's out there, will take the state of your soul and fashion a new reality for you. And you will be reborn according to that new reality. And if that, if that reality if your state of mind was fear, trepidation, terror, well, then your next life is not going to be a happy one. So somewhere, I think St. Paul says, he who dies will live. He who dies now in the body will live. Because that then death, what will be thy sting? You'll have been through it. You know exactly what it holds. These lights and sounds and all the stuff that you taught in the initiation, you'll have been through it. There'll be it's no to reason prepare to the body it. for the process of dying, the body and the consciousness for the process of dying. Yeah, exactly. You, you have to go through it. He who gives up his life will save his life. And that, and that is why it's so closely tied to Paul's famous question. Death, where is thy sting? I've been to you. I've met to you. What, what exactly what happens? I know it's happened to me. When I was caught up into the third heaven, remember how he says that? I was caught up into the third heaven and I saw things there that no, but the eye hath not seen and the ear hath not heard and that hath not entered into the heart of man. Paul claims to have undergone that experience. And he comes out and he says, I'm not afraid of dying. Why should I be afraid of dying? I know exactly what's there. It's not extinction. It's not that I'm going to be gone and nothing left. So there's no reason for me when I'm dying to be terrified, to dread. And so that when I encounter Jesus, you won't flee, you won't recoil. You know, think of the Buddha's uh, description of what happened under the bow tree. What did he see? Mara, the devil. They all came at him, screaming from hell. And he just sat there steadfast until that all just went away. And there was nothing to worry about. So, I mean, it make, to me, it makes perfect sense. We all say, we all fear to, well, no, let's practice dying. Well, someone says, well, how, how can you do that? How can you practice dying? That's what's being taught. Mm -hmm. 
how. The body of Jesus gushing forth with eternal water is mirrored in the Grail stories, in which Parseval, whose name means the piercer of the valley, the soft palate perhaps, procures the Grail, which in the early visions is a bowl or a stone that gushes forth eternally with water. Then this bursting occurs, this downflow, which is described in the ancient yoga text as the soma nectar dripping down from the Right, and and in the ancient yoga text where I discovered this, the soma is decided living into a bowl, and the bowl is the shape of the crescent moon. And that moon, so again, think now of the skull, and just trace an arc across the brows, bottoming out between them, and then dangling up over the other brow. If you follow that, you'll see that that's, that's the bowl into which the soma drips. And it is that ball. That's the Holy Grail. So let's see. Heroes who live in the skull, who break things open, or are themselves broken open. Well, there are a whole lot of them in the stories of the world. Let's take Zeus. Zeus pursues his own tutor, the lovely Metis, with his usual lustful ardor. Finally, she acquiesces to his advances. Except there's just one thing. She gets pregnant, and he knows that his wife, Hera, will be absolutely livid. So he coerces his teacher to hide inside his own head in the form of a fly. He swallows her. A few days later, and Zeus is hearing a relentless buzzing and having terrible headaches. There seems to be no cure. Finally, Hephaestus, the smith, the divine alchemist, something of an outcast, suggests a cure, but it's a pretty drastic one. Hephaestus gathers all the gods together, places Zeus in the center of the gathering. He tells him to get down on his knees as he sharpens an enormous double-sided axe. Here's how Stephen Fry tells it. Quote, Zeus dropped obediently to his knees and awaited his fate. Hephaestus spat cheerfully and confidently on his hands, gripped the thick wooden haft, and as the hushed crowd looked on, brought it down in one swift swinging movement clean through the very center of Zeus's skull, splitting it neatly in two. There was a terrible silence as everyone stared in stunned horror. The stunned horror turned to wild disbelief. The wild disbelief to bewildered amazement, as they now witnessed rising up from inside Zeus's open head the topmost plume of a russet crest. It was followed by the tip of the spear. Onlookers held their breath as slowly there arose into view a female figure dressed in full armor. Zeus lowered his head, whether in pain, relief, submission, or in sheer awe, nobody could be certain. 
and as if his head was a ramp or gangway let down for her convenience, the glorious being stepped down calmly onto the sand and turned to face him. Equipped with plated armor, shield, spear, and plumed helmet, she gazed at her father with eyes of matchless and wonderful gray, gray that seemed to radiate one quality above all others, infinite wisdom. Athena. Infinite wisdom forged from the splitting open and the melted raw material of Zeus's skull. You see, says Fry, quote, Metis had been hard at work in Zeus's skull, smelting, firing, and hammering out armor and weaponry. There was enough iron, minerals, rare earths, and trace elements in the god's blood and bones, all the ores and compounds she needed. So we have a hero who is consciousness with a restless urge to wed, which means to unite into the trance state. He weds himself to a teacher, but then can't get a buzzing out of his head. That's the consequence we pay, right, when we first start to follow the path. Eventually, the hero's head must be cracked open, where all the raw liquids, all very yogic, are smelted into coherent form, the shining armor of wisdom. The fact that Zeus's cracking open was the result of a union, a wedding of sorts, is also no accident. Many are the myths in which a wedding is followed by a cracking open. The wedding, of course, is a yogic process of uniting, a union which is followed by rupture. Look at the tradition. What happens in Jewish weddings? They break a glass, right? They break a glass of wine. What happens in Greek weddings? They break plates. They throw them down and they smash them. Think of the whole, uh, this, now this is really to show you how, just how universal this is. The Mesoamerican pinata. What happens with a pinata? It's held up and then it's smashed again and again until what? It breaks open and what comes out? Sweet thing. So we have pinatas, plates smashed at Greek weddings. Samson tears down the pillars at a great wedding, then discovers a lion's skull full of dripping honey, rupture cascade. Something is joined together so that something may be split apart. Something is split in service of larger union. The yogic harnessing, the wedding that leads to rupture, often involves bridging three worlds or constructing a building of three layers. Jesus rises and falls three times before the rupture. The yogi merges the three channels into one before the rise of kundalini can lead to the cracking open. Past, present, and future must be joined in order to experience the nectar of the present moment. In this light, the construction of a three-tiered pyramid in order to crack open a butter pot, like I saw in that festival in Vrindavan, takes on a whole new meaning. To restore the balance of the universe, Shiva, the yogi, shoots an arrow that passes through the three floating cities of bronze, silver, and gold. The yogi is the one who unites past, present, and future, the three layers of the cosmos, below, middle, and above. In the tales of the goddess Tripura Sundari, whose name literally means the beautiful one within the three cities, the yogic harnessing is accomplished with arrows made of sugarcane, piercing, again leads to sweetness. 
In the Celtic story of Ceridwen, whose name, the Bent One, is concurrent with the name of the Kundalini energy in Indian tradition, a cauldron of pure inspiration is set to fire, and a man named Gwion is put to tend it. The heat rises, the cauldron cracks, and says Robert Graves, quote, Three burning drops flew out and fell on little Guion's finger. He thrust it into his mouth and at once understood the nature and meaning of all things past, present, and future. End quote. So after the cracking open and merging of three times, there's a flood from the cauldron that poisons all the horses, something that Joseph Sansonese would immediately recognize as indicative of the stoppage of breath. And Guion is reborn as Taliesin, the one with a shining brow, rising, cracking open, the merging of past, present, and future, a cascade of liquid, and a shining brow. This is yogic practice. Tear down this temple, Jesus said, and I will rebuild it again in three days. But sometimes it is the collapse of a seven-leveled structure that leads to this yogic liberation. So Joshua, the old Hebraic warrior, invokes a tremendous sound, and the seven walls of Jericho come tumbling down. The sound, perhaps, the humming trumpet of the trance state, the za 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 of the Kalahari trance practitioner. And when the sound reaches its most ringing, resonant pitch, the seven walls, or seven chakras, or seven sins, or seven notes on the scale, or seven colors of the rainbow, collapse into one sound, one light, oneness, and then the battle is won. Sound far-fetched? How many stories are there from how many different parts of the world of the collapse of seven-leveled structures? The Tower of Babel in biblical understanding has seven levels in which no one can understand each other because everyone is speaking different languages. The Tower is the body in meditation and the chatter of languages is the chatter of the mind. When Babel falls, in some African tellings, the collapse of the rafters splits the skulls of the architects. The Rig Veda speaks of the fire of Agni and the liquid Soma pouring into a seven-leveled structure understood to be the body of the sage. And then we have the fall of Troy. Well, as Sansanese reminds us, the key to understanding the collapse of the seven-leveled city of Troy is understanding Hector. Here's Sansanese on Troy. Troy is those walls that separate the seas. And, and the whole Greek expedition is to batter down those walls. What does Hector mean in Greek? The Iliad ends with the death of Hector. And Hector's name is from a Greek word, echtor, which means to hold, right? To hold back. And it was the name that the Greeks used for a cross piece that you put across a door. You must have seen the sort of thing to prevent it from being opened, a crossbar. That was the word. Hector was the Greek word for that crossbar. And the whole Greek assault on Troy is the discussion of that crossbar. Once that opens up, the city falls. It collapses, and the upper world and the lower world join into this one state of ecstatic trance. And all myths have this as their goal. As a matter of fact, this is, this is the myth of myths. 
So Hector is the crossbar, that which must be broken open for the structure to collapse. The crossbar is removed, the prana reaches the skull, and the whole seven-level city falls. And there's more with Troy. When we understand the correlation between horses and the breath, that harnessing horses is harnessing the breath, as is directly said in the yogic texts, that killing horses or sacrificing horses is stopping the breath, then we see the yogic understanding of Troy come full circle. For how is Troy ultimately defeated? By inserting a horse into the center of a seven-leveled city, then the structure is collapsed from within. So the hero is the piercer of the valley, the crossbar, born at the pallet, the one who's raised up and pierced in the place of the skull. It's too prevalent to be a coincidence. And for those who actually practice, it becomes eventually obvious. It is speaking of the rising of the energy up within the skull and the cracking open into this state of ecstatic union. We find this over and over and over again. Ultimately, rupture is an experience that happens in many small ways throughout our lives. We have the experience of rupture when situations suddenly change, when we know that something needs to give, when there is an urgent call for breakthrough, when we suddenly see things a different way and a light goes off, or if circumstances demand that we do indeed change now. Sometimes at those points we resist the inevitable rupture, holding on to a situation or negative habit or bad relationship until time and circumstance dictate that we must be broken open. This is where the ego-slaying goddesses come into play in the Indian traditions, and the rupture is accomplished with a variety of divine weapons, hooks and prods, sacrificial daggers, swords, axes, maces, clubs. Our former selves are skewered, hacked, chopped into bits, and then we rise up whole again. Wholeness is said to be something that depends on rupture. We need to be broken open in order to be whole. The crack is where the light gets in, so they say. This is where, traditionally, sacrifice comes in. To keep things whole, some other things need to be broken open. Think piñatas and plates at weddings again. This is a recognition of the energetic necessity of rupture and its close relationship with wholeness. Rupture is a feature of nearly all human ritual. Perhaps in the absence of ritualized rupture, we become more prone to seeking the catharsis of rupture in other ways. Have you ever seen these guys? They're called the slow-mo guys. And they make these incredibly high-resolution, ultra-slow-motion videos of things breaking apart. We've all seen stuff like this, right? The balloon bursting in slow motion as a bullet is fired through it, a watermelon cracking open. Why would these guys, the slow-mo guys, for posting slow motion videos of fruit breaking open, have 5, 10 million views on YouTube? What is it that's so attractive about these videos? It's the rupture. A quick Google search reveals that action movies these days often feature more than 500 explosions, with Transformers Revenge of the Fallen possibly leading the way, though that was a few years ago at this point. That's 500 cathartic ruptures followed by the 
cascade of sweetness, the fans eagerly sucking down big gulp sodas as something else breaks open and something else and something else again and again and again. Rupture, rupture, rupture. If our tastes in movies are any indication, we are definitely eager to see things break open. But let's not be too hard on our friends in Hollywood. Better to watch those repetitive ruptures in the comfort of a theater than to experience them in the theater of war, where generals and weapons designers take their boyhood fascination with rupture, sexual rupture possibly, inverted on a grand scale, creating more and more efficient ways to blow things and people apart. The tantric texts recognized the human proclivity towards rupture and even identified certain ruptures that can be harnessed for the purpose of spiritual wholeness. Sexual rupture, the rupture of astonishment, of spontaneous beholding, even the rupture of sneezing. Yes, even sneezing is a rupture. And within the tantras, there are even meditation practices based on that holy moment, the moment of the sneeze. Ultimately, the rupture we are seeking is within. The rupture that leads to wholeness. The rupture of our former life into the sweet cascade of what is coming. The rupture of the individual in service of experiencing the universal. The cracking of Brahma's egg. So let's not run from rupture. Let's embrace it. Through meditation, through art, through repetitive ritual. Through a relentless commitment to breaking open old patterns and letting the light shine in. Says Martin Shaw, quote, Myth could be said to be a collision of ruptures. From this perspective, our rupture, our ruin, is our axis mundi, our holy hills, our cathedral. In addition to some wonderful words shared by mythologist Joseph Sansonese, this episode contains reference to several books and movies. Soma in Yoga and Ayurveda by David Frawley. Tirumandaram, the great Tamil yogic text. The Roots of Yoga by James Mallinson. The Masks of God series by Joseph Campbell. Deciphering Ancient Minds by David Lewis Williams. Ardor by Roberto Colasso. A Branch from the Lightning Tree by Martin Shaw. The Body of Myth by Joseph Sansonese, Mythos by Stephen Fry. The White Goddess by Robert Graves. The videos of The Slow-Mo Guys, Cheer, the Netflix docuseries. And of course, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. If you're really into it, you can check YouTube for a clip that gets rid of all the meaningless acting and dialogue and just strings together every single explosion. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the Emerald Podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as $6 per month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and until next time, may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. Mm-hmm.
Thank you.